welcome to episode 9 of Talking Musicology, a bi-monthly podcast in which we discuss current issues in the world of musicology. My name is Liam Cagney and I'm here as ever with Stephen Graham. Hello. Marshall McLuhan once remarked that people don't actually read newspapers, they get into them every morning like a hot bath. McLuhan in many ways announced our current technological age. Our very selfhood for him was reciprocal with our environment an environment now intercut with media and information in which, via technology, the world has become connected as never before. McLuhan stressed how this invisible, unconscious technological environment, most of us are unaware of the degree to which we are actually in it, doesn't simply enable us in our day-to-day actions, but on a deeper level, actively transforms us as a species. All media, McLuhan said, from the phonetic alphabet to the computer, are extensions of man that cause deep and lasting changes in him, and transform his environment. We shape our tools, and thereafter our tools shape us. These observations, which obviously have a lot of currency in the internet age, serve as a preamble to episode 9, in which we're going to discuss post-internet music. This episode's discussion takes off from a recent article by Michael Waugh, entitled, My Laptop is an Extension of My Memory and Self, Post-Internet Identity, Virtual Intimacy, and and Digital Querying in Online Popular Music which was published in the summer 2017 issue of Popular Music. Michael was visiting lecturer in Media and Cultural Studies at Newcastle University and was awarded his doctorate in 2016 in Digital Media and Popular Music from Anglia Ruskin University with a thesis exploring the impact that omnipresent social media has on contemporary media and musical practice. Watt pivots his article on the notion of the post-internet, which he says refers to the impact of digital networks, portable devices, and social media on identity and society. Waugh examines the post-internet music of Holly Herndon, 18+, Arca, and Mickey Blanco, each of whom, he says, self-consciously highlights post-internet themes in their work. Waugh also includes in his analysis video artist Ryan Tricartin and fashion designers Hood by Air, claiming, with some justification, that the post-internet aesthetic of the musicians in question cannot be reduced to sound, but is rather an entire multimedia aesthetic. Waugh takes us through a range of post-internet music. Holly Herndon's collapse of public and private spheres in her song chorus, the thematic trend of digital queer, wherein, as part of its general smudging of identity, the internet encourages androgyny and polysexuality, as in the work of 18+, who sometimes use different genders for their online personas, Mickey Blanco's surreal drag and multiplicity, Arca's vision of his IDM music as a type of phantasmic feminine alter ego, and in video, Ryan Trickarton's transvestism and diversification of the self. We hear a lot these days about millennials, and in a way, what is discussing here the musical counterpart to this term? What manifests in the music of those who have never known a time when the internet was not omnipresent? What sort of music is being made by the first generation for whom the internet has always been a fact of life? Waugh's answer is that it is music in which identity and sexuality are fluid and multiple, in which any distinction between the authentic and the persona is untenable, and in which there isn't even any distinction between online and the real world. There was and is no offline, Waugh claims, quoting Nathan Jurgensen. Even if we have no Facebook profile, Facebook has so saturated social existence that it has completely changed the terms of engagement. 
Facebook is real life is another of Jurgensen's memorably flippant statements cited in this article. Wall links all this to the post-humanism of Donna Haraway and others. And I'll end this introduction with a quote from Wall. The link to post-internet ideas is clear. The post-internet generation has fused with digital spaces, rendering them post-human in comparison with those that do not have the same symbiotic relationship with these technologies. These relationships have granted post-internet artists a platform on which new and mutable identities can be explored. As practitioners such as Tabitha Rezerpuri, post-internet art embraces the digital and all its contradictions. It's like another language to express yourself with. Like any language, it limits and controls the way you think, but it also gives access to new dimensions and creates new feelings. End of quote. So I'm going to turn to you now, Stephen, and I just wanted to ask, as somebody who uh, has done a bit of work in this area yourself, how persuasive did you find was presentation of this as all part of one distinct musical movement? Did you find it convincing that all of these artists are part of a new movement? Well, I guess the simple answer is yes, up to a point, because the post-internet as a category and a framework is so broad that it almost becomes impossible to disprove um, its its kind of presence in um, contemporary culture. Of course, we're in a post-internet age on one level, because the internet has existed in a kind of a pervasive, prominent way for, what, 15, 20 years at this point. It does consume much of daily kind of social life. It does define and kind of set out the parameters of how we talk to people and how we kind of live our lives. Claiming that there's a, an artistic movement that exists in response to that situation is not a, a controversial claim to make. Where it becomes a little bit more complicated, I suppose, is in the detail. You know, the devil's always in the detail. And the detail here... And um, without without jumping to the negative, uh, is a little bit glossed. So there's a kind of a gloss which allows these very different artists to fit into this very singular framework, which is laid out pretty clearly at the start. And I think that's one of the strengths of this article. Um, I'm always harping on about this, but I do really appreciate when someone roadmaps their thought and gives a clear sense of how each kind of element of the argument interlocks with the other. So that, that is very much in play here. And I also want to applaud the range and, and the kind of breadth of the critical perspective here, because we get all sorts of interesting artists being juxtaposed from, well, you've mentioned a lot of them, Mickey Blanca, um, Arca, Holly Herndon, Ryan Chicarton, and so on. These are all very interesting figures producing really kind of vivid and lively work, which does in some sense exist in a post-internet zone, if you like. Um, so I, I applaud, the, as I said, the range of the article and the kind of clarity with which it kind of lays out its its kind of overview of this area. I'm less convinced, though, by the specific kind of swerves and details of the argument, such as it is. What, what about you? What did you make of this? Um, I agree, I think, with the thrust of what you're saying there. So are you saying that with a, with a range of artists like this and then selecting a category of choice for them um, you can just ignore any artist who doesn't fall into that picture and who would otherwise who would unsettle that picture so for example when i was reading about this actually before i even read the article i was thinking oh he's going to talk a bit about vaporwave maybe or yeah uh, one or two other musical artists who are kind of associated with the internet or or uh, musical phenomena um, but for example, to take the example of Vaporwave, that doesn't show up in this article. And I wonder whether that's in part because 
there is no you know gender fluidity or identity politics or sexual identity element in vaporwave at all actually ah. which would mean it wouldn't really fit in with the rest of it and if it didn't really fit in with the rest of it then it might uh, slightly weaken the argument that this is a all of this music has what all of this music has in common I don't know, represents something very concrete Mm-hmm. Well, I think you, you've hit on something really interesting there. And I mean, let's not beat about the bush because there are a number, for me at least, there's a number of critical maneuvers that this article pivots on, which I find almost totally unconvincing. Uh, one of them is in this kind of elision that we get between digital culture and digital queerness. And it feels as if, I think this might be what you were just getting at, it feels as if these artists have been somewhat cherry picked. Uh, in order to support that thesis. And the thesis is that, I suppose, we have this post-internet culture. Within post-internet culture, there is a kind of a post-humanism which quickly slips into or kind of um, grows into a kind of a a queerness, a kind of a post-gender, post-heteronormative queerness. And these artists embody that kind of link between the post-internet and what he calls digital queerness. And I think you're right that Possibly one of the reasons Vaporwave was not included. And that was another kind of a, a glaring absence for me. I was utterly shocked and not a little bit kind of impressed that Vaporwave didn't appear, to be honest, because, you know, whenever these kinds of terms get bandied about, wherever, whenever people are thinking about this kind of area, Vaporwave seems to be the go to kind of case study. So in, in a way, I'm, I'm quite impressed that Vaporwave wasn't addressed here. But still, your point stands, which is that. I think the cherry picking of these artists to support the thesis reveals a kind of a critical argument, which is not entirely developed or not entirely rigorous, let's say. That, that's sort of what I was getting at. Um, on the other hand, I, one thing that I quite liked about this article was his focus on the multimodal nature, I think he, he says, of internet music. The fact that it isn't just sound, but I mean, obviously this goes back longer than the internet, but uh, with all of these artists, there is such a deep engagement with the visual identity, um, with cinematic elements, with computer graphics and so on. And that that comprises the musical identity as much as the sound or it's not just the sound on its own. I think he kind of he, he is quite clear and uh, and quite effective in showing how that is consistent between all of these artists. He writes, quote, there is a clear multimodal element to post-internet musical production, owing primarily to the intermedial nature of the internet and its dissolution of boundaries between the audio and the visual, end of quote. So if many of us are getting our music fixed through YouTube and these artists are responding to that as themselves being listeners by creating music that's specifically designed for that platform, it does effectively create maybe Maybe something quite distinct. I think it's clear to see in the Holly Herndon um, piece that he mentions, Chorus, uh, in the video of which um, it's sort of this weird virtual reality version of Holly Herndon or her persona at home in her room on a computer screen. And whereas in the 90s, we often had like old virtual reality of people in you know, 3D space with kind of fake trees or whatever. This is virtual reality, a virtual reality version of the internet. So it's this kind of weird reflexive environment where you're, like I was watching this video on YouTube and then I kind of 
noticed myself watching a video on YouTube of a video that's on YouTube in, in her video and so on. Uh, yeah, I mean, Wall doesn't go into too much theoretical detail with, with that aspect, but it, it was something that I did find interesting. You're right that the kind of multimodality in his language of this work is kind of quite interesting, but that kind of underlines the point of uh, Vaporwave. I mean, Vaporwave is absolutely native in that kind of world. It, it relies on kind of digital imagery and um, or, or like proto-digital imagery from the 90s, um, advertising Im images, uh, you know, YouTube as a kind of a site of artistic play and so on. Grecian statues and busts. Within this weird, within this weird sampling, sampling kind of aesthetic. So, so that kind of underlines the kind of cherry pick nature of this argument, which is that um, it, it seems to not, it seems to rest on this pivot that he makes between, again, uh, the post-internet and post-humanism, which allows him to bring in queerness and gender theory and queer theory and so on. And I just was, was never in any way convinced of that. I think that that maneuver comes out of his artists, comes out of his case studies. And I wish it had been presented as such because it might have been a stronger argument then. It may not have had as much wide purchase, but it may have been an actual strong, critical point of view on these artists, which we kind of lack a little bit. So, so there, that's one of the first issues, I suppose, I mentioned that I had these critical maneuvers that I felt the article kind of failed on. And I suppose that's the first one. But the other one that I think you were bringing up there a moment ago is I think this suffers from the inventing the wheel fallacy. So you mentioned uh, multimodal art. As, as, of course, you well know, there's been decades and decades of multimodal art or intermedial art, which is another term that's used here. Many people have written about it. Just off the top of my head, one of my colleagues, Holly Rogers, wrote a book called Sounding the Gallery, which is kind of giving a history of um, intermedial art. She talks about kind of video art music and, and how these different movements like experiments in art and technology in the 60s and, and artists later on, such as Ryan Chakarton, are working in this kind of way. So there's a lack of kind of historical background and a lack of kind of theoretical context here to this article, which I find a little bit problematic, let's say. Okay, so, I take your point about the theoretical context, but at the same time, I would argue that it's not strictly necessary to go into the historical lineage of some of these practices, because I, I agree that uh, there were, I mean, there's a lot that's familiar in what these artists are doing. Uh, surrealism, collage, sampling, all sorts of artistic approaches that go back to the early 20th century and possibly even earlier in some cases. But that said, I mean, as in when we were talking about the new discipline, the, the, the compositional movement, the new discipline, uh, where you can recognise a lot there that's from Cagle and people like that working in the mid-20th century. Here, although these artists are using some of these techniques. It doesn't mean that it's um, identical with with that which went before it. I think it could still be something new. Uh, so I guess maybe if there had been a paragraph or a line or two about addressing that lineage and maybe addressing what's different, that would have helped the overall argument. I don't think it takes away too much from the article, though. I, no, I agree. I mean, I don't. It, it wasn't a major point. It was just that at a few kind of... Uh, key moments in the article, I felt as if history was the kind of elephant in the room. And when I say history, I just mean, you know, music and theory, which uh, kind of precedes the stuff that he's talking about in the article. And you're right, it didn't need to be a kind of a, a large scale uh, redesign of the article, but I think it needed to it needed to make itself 
heard a little bit more in the argument. And the argument would have just been, would have felt much richer to me then. And the, the kind of context around it, both musically, culturally and theoretically, would have just felt much more convincing, I think, if if he had attempted, because that's what we're talking about here, I guess, not just uh, scene setting for the sake of it, but a kind of a, a grappling with the little distinctions and, and um, differences between this work and this kind of movement, which he's trying to identify and put a framework around, and stuff which comes before it. So you mentioned Marshall McLuhan at the outset. There's all sorts of interesting theory, which which kind of connects to stuff he's talking about, especially in the first section when he's talking all about the blends of the digital and the virtual and how online and offline li- life for, for these post-millennials, uh, quote-unquote, I think we need to talk about that label, um, supposedly you know meshes together as this kind of flat flat experience you know a lot of people have written about that for decades you know it could go all the way back to Lacan talking about life as a kind of a, a mesh of the you know the real the imaginary and the symbolic and how and how all all kind of experience and desire is based on this weird like weird gothic sense of the object and the subject overlaying each other and our life is kind of like behind this screen this kind of fan this phantasm where your desire is always like the inhuman partner on the other side of the screen, um, which may seem like I'm, I'm kind of grabbing at stuff which is a little bit uh, far off from what he's talking about. But actually, I feel like these two things really chime with each other, which is like life pre-internet, post-internet, intra-internet. Life is a mesh of um, screens, imagery, symbolism, all of which or none of which is quote unquote real or um, you know, real world versus online world. It's all a kind of a mesh. And so when he's talking about the real and the virtual and the digital and the analog, these are oppositions which have been covered at length in the literature and in culture. And I just would have felt it was a slightly more convincing or rich perspective if he'd kind of brought all that stuff to, to, the, to the table. I think the, the point you make about Lacan is quite relevant here. Um, because what I was thinking about when I was reading this article, which I did like, was how this specular, this visual, optical uh, element, and you know, it's it's being bound up with desire. How that links with television, for example, and, and cinema. And I often think when I see, uh, you know, smartphone zombies or whatever, completely hooked on their phones, I often think of uh, people's relationship with television, maybe twenty or thirty years ago, which. Uh, a lot of young people, you know, on the left or whatever, used to criticise. I used to have a sticker on like my guitar case saying "Kill Your TV" or whatever. <laughs> Say that while at the same time being completely hooked on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and on their smartphones and so on. Uh, that it's a, it's a, there's been a shift, but there's a lot of continuity there too. And in regard to music, uh, a lot of what these artists are doing visually, I think should be seen in the lineage going back through MTV and the development of the music video. Like Laurie Anderson was somebody who came to mind when I was reading about uh, some of the themes in this article. She was presenting some of these similar themes in her music in the 1980s and in her music videos especially. For sure, yeah. And, and you know, and this is, this is again, the, the, the idea of context and background which is not just for its own sake but it could have created a richer kind of dialogue and sense of what this work is doing and um, which is different and also kind of relating to the, these other examples nam june pike is someone that came to mind with me he played a lot with i mean you you mentioned tv he played obviously a lot with screens tv screens um, and in his later stuff he even moved towards a kind of a 
proto kind of an internet kind of a sense. So yeah, so all that stuff is is in the background here, but it's not really in the background of the article. If you see what I mean. So do you think this is this uh, what we're kind of I guess presenting as a lack of historical sense? Do you think that mirrors post millennials' uh, lack of historical awareness in general or something? Well, uh, what? Okay, okay. What is a post millennial? I'm just using that term because it was. Uh, in the article, and because it's come up in our discussion, I'll confess that I've never used the word millennial before now. Cause I... Well, millennial, I mean, I've used the word millennial a lot. Um, technically, uh, technically, we are millennials, which I was shocked to discover. Millennial, in a lot of definitions, is someone born from 1980 onwards. So we just get in under the, <laughs> under the radar. But um, so I've, I've just never heard the term post-millennial. And I was just really wondering why he used it without kind of any sense of an explanation of what it is um, and and why millennial wasn't felt to be kind of adequate as a term. So that was a weird one. That was kind of part of the slight jargonism here, I think. Okay, okay. I didn't really find jargonism to be an issue with me in in what I was reading here. Like I said, I I did find the descriptions of each artist, you know, vivid and strong as far as it goes. Like in in a kind of survey article like this, which is presenting, let's say, a movement and the distinct voices within that movement, and trying to provide a, a cursory theoretical framework for it, it's very hard to go into too much detail with the specific uh, case studies. Uh, so that said, like I did find these descriptions compelling. There was a sense of this sort of virtual stage which these artists inhabit in everybody's home via their laptop and so on. So one issue I did find with this article was uh, terminologically the distinction between internet and World Wide Web. I'm not a tech person at all, but I do, as far as, you know, I do I do think there is a distinction between internet and World Wide Web. So what we are logging onto when we open a browser is the World Wide Web. It's sort of like the superstructure to the base, which is the internet. The internet is the technical possibility or means which facilitates the creation of this structure on top of it, this platform which is the web. So I started reading a book recently by um, one of the early Silicon Valley people. His name is Jaron Lanier, and he invented the term uh, virtual reality. Like he was back there in the early 80s. The book is called You Are Not a Gadget, and it's this polemic against Web 2.0 as it has developed, uh, mainly in the hands of like large corporations like Facebook and uh, Twitter and Google. And he's criticizing like quite vehemently the fact that people just use these media in a totally uncritical way, that like far from liberating us completely in terms of identity, it's actually containing us in a very insidious way, which we very rarely recognize. And I mean, that's most obvious in something like Facebook, which people, in my view, get totally addicted to, and which, you know, we've all heard the arguments about how great it is for making connections and for knowing what's going on. But, you know, it, it's this big corporate structure, basically. And what um, Lanier is arguing in his book is that we have really should not lose sight of the fact that other webs, basically, are, are possible. Other ways of engaging the Internet are possible, rather than this Web 2.0, which, you know, in his view, took a wrong turn. So, like, from the technological point of view, I think that while maybe Allied's web and Internet in this article... He's speaking of a very specific uh, thing, which we, we all engage with on a daily basis, like YouTube and, and Twitter and so on. 
but he's calling it the internet. Uh, so it's slightly ahistorical, maybe, just to assume that this is the internet, this is all that it could be. Uh, am, I, um, am I making sense there? It was just something that I, I couldn't really um, avoid thinking when I was yeah. reading this article. I think maybe, maybe more, more tech detail would, would be helpful. Well, I think you've 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 hit on something really interesting there, which is the the kind of u, uh, digital utopian slant that this article seems to have. And so you mentioned there about how Facebook, YouTube, uh, and all these other um, social media platforms kind of just are the internet for for a while. So this is the kind of landscape that we're confronted with, and it's a kind of a given almost. It's like a historical given that that doesn't emerge from anywhere, and that doesn't have any kind of a sense of like dynamic or power structures built into it now of course the article is much more nuanced than that but in a very simplistic uh kind of a stepping out from it you do kind of sometimes get this sense of the internet as just this utopian space where all these platforms just emerged out of the ether fully formed and our use of them can can be completely controlled and um, designed by us and i think this is to come on to my kind of final critical maneuver, I think the article really fundamentally lacks a critical voice. And that plays out in that first general section on post-internet and then on post-humanism. And then it also plays out in the specific sections where he talks about the artists. I guess it plays out in different ways. In the first section, you get the sense of the internet, as I said, as this this digital utopian realm where identity is, is just a free play of of choice and uh, gender almost goes away and power goes away and all these platforms which are obviously capitalistic and fully reliant on things like affective labor and us buying into them and us kind of working for them in order to make them service them and, and, and allow them to make money all these things all these different dynamics which have been written about at length for years and years now not least by mark fisher who he quotes at length from this article kind of ignores that and then as it moves on to discussing the specific artists in a kind of a similar way, it ignores any sense of a critical perspective that it might have brought to bear on these artists. So like it, it accepts the premise of the Internet, of the post-Internet, and then it kind of, in a kind of a closed loop, it takes that premise and then just uses its, its examples to, to shore it up and to affirm it. So the arguments are kind of, adornment where they should be kind of critical you know it's a real it's a real closed loop and what we lose here is we exist solely within the conceptual frames designed by the artists themselves and we also exist solely within the kind of premise of the article so so it's it's not an actual argument it's more a kind of a as i said this kind of closed loop where we get a narrowing of the critical distance that might have existed between the artist and the author. So scholarship like this, for me, its main function should be to cut against the grain. You know, it should be not for not again, not for its own sake, but because that's the power that scholarship has as a kind of a, a slow, patient format. It, it shouldn't be accepting the premises and simply affirming them by kind of um, citing examples, which is all we really get in the discussion of these artists. You know, I don't think any of these artists would disagree with anything that is said in this article. So it, it, in the end, it kind of serves as a as a mouthpiece and as a kind of a a filling out of a kind of an intentional fallacy. And so that that in the end is it falls down for me. It, it's it's very interesting in many ways. And as I said, I really like the range and I really like some of the descriptions. I think there could have been more said about music. I think there could have been more formalism. There could have been more about the visuals in Tricartan's work, for example. We could have had 
um, images as examples. We could have had a lot more detail. But as you say, this is a kind of a an overview. This is a kind of a broad landscape setting piece. So I understand the limitations in that respect. But still, I wanted more of a critical voice. I wanted more detail. And I think com- coming coming back to what you were saying about accepting the Internet as as a kind of an ahistorical um, format, I think that's at the, the seed of a lot of the problems here. What did you make of the descriptions of Mickey Blanco in terms of post-internet and all that? I hadn't really listened to Mickey Blanco's music before, although a couple of people had mentioned it to me. So this was the first time where I actually sat down and watched a couple of the videos. I found was descriptions accurate. And I think it's like what I've called it a survey. I'll continue to call it a survey. I think a survey like this is useful in bringing this this uh, music to a broader awareness in the scholarly community and I think Wa does so effectively here in how he describes uh, Blanco's aesthetic. It doesn't delve too deeply analytically or in terms of formal analysis, as you've just said. Nothing really struck me in particular about it. Are you thinking of something in particular? Well, not really. Just just two things, I guess, quickly. Uh, one is that, as someone who, who knows Blanco's work a bit and has seen him live and has read a bit about him, nothing I read here surprised me or nothing I read here convinced me that there was any kind of a take which was original now as you say it's a kind of a survey article i think that's a good term for this article actually so in in that sense maybe it didn't really need to offer any kind of new take maybe the 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 purpose here is just to like synthesize blanco amongst these other artists so so it's okay insofar as it goes but i i was looking for something a little bit more original in in the take second thing is that I just wasn't sure that the idea that because Blanco is using samples from YouTube in a very kind of a liberated way and because his voice is placed in a very particular way in the in the mix and so on. And because he does have this, he does play with identity in a very deliberate way. I just wasn't convinced that that really meant that he is a post-internet artist. I just wasn't sure about that. And for me, it, it brought things back to the problem I had, which early on with that kind of slippage between post-internet and the digital queer or post-internet and post-humanism i'm just not i'm just not convinced by that really so um, yeah so i I just kind of wanted to pick up on some of the details what about then just the arca section what about the section when he is quoting reviews of the arca album okay arca is somebody i've been listening to for a few years i liked arca's uh, first album quite a lot haven't listened to the new one yet i found that section maybe one of the the parts of the articles that could probably have been um, edited or just just removed. So yeah, Walt mentions a few negative reviews that Arca got and seems slightly, you know, slightly indignant that uh, the critics didn't get, quote unquote, what Arca tried to do and using the wrong frame of reference for judging Arca's music. I guess um, strategically, maybe what Wall was trying to do here was just to set up some of the some of the misapprehensions about the music and to kind of uh, to contrast this with with how he sees the music and how, how it actually is. I I found uh, slightly problematic was argument that Arca's music is sort of like a an allegorical representation of digital queerness. The, Arca's music is like what's called IDM generally. It's very glitchy. It's lots of kind of strange synthesized and um, heavily processed sounds kind of combined in a fragmentary way. And was arguing that this texture, this this surface of the music is like a representation of gender identity and of the malleability of personal identity in the internet music. 
uh, because I listened to quite a lot of music like Ottaker and stuff like that. Yeah. I didn't really find that so persuasive. Right, exactly. And and isn't that isn't that kind of telling because the, the arguments about the texts, let's say, so the music and the videos and so on, they always come back to this premise and they're always kind of they're almost used as a as like window dressing to 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 dress up that premise and I'm just not sure because obviously you can make music mean a lot of things and in this case it's made to mean the kind of overarching uh, view of both the author here and the artist you know it's made to chime with those and I just find that a little bit suspicious I just find it a little bit unconvincing you know so I mean as I mentioned earlier on you're somebody who's done a bit of work in this area and obviously you've found some problems with this article I wanted to ask is there is there other writing you know including your own which you find presents a a good theoretical or conceptual framework for understanding some of this recent music that's been coming out that's got some ties to the internet maybe whose main platform is the internet and which explicitly thematizes some internet elements in its uh yeah, yeah i mean it's a really good question i let me just make clear first of all we've we've well i've in particular harped on the negative here i i as i was kind of talking my brain was kind of telling me um i think you should rename i think we should rename this podcast uh, criticizing musicology rather than talking musicology because we seem to really criticize a lot of these articles but actually i think for me at least implicit in a lot of these criticisms is that these articles are doing a lot of good work and i'm not just saying this for the sake of it. I, I did enjoy a lot of this article and i really enjoyed the work that it's discussing and i enjoyed some of the descriptions and i absolutely understand and agree that there is a kind of a, a new movements which we might call post-internet which is doing some really unique and interesting things i just didn't quite go along with, with some of the moves the article was making and fundamentally it lacked a critical voice so it's not to say that the article didn't have interesting things to say but to answer your question um i mean someone like adam harper has written a lot about things like vaporwave he had an article in the in the previous issue of popular music which i know we've talked about the critical imperative issue and that was called uh, it was something like why internet music is frying your brain and that was taking less of a kind of a survey-ish kind of scene setting point of view and actually diving in and talking about the ways in which internet or post-internet music is kind of written about and listened to so that was a, that's a kind of an interesting theoretical point of view someone who i find even more interesting is uh, Stephen shaviro who i'll mention again in a few minutes but he's written a lot about things like digital music videos and uh, what he calls post-cinematic affect. And he talks about music within that as well. So he had a book on, on Zero Books called Post-Cinematic Affect, which is one of the most impressive and, and most kind of compelling and, and provocative theoretical texts I've ever kind of read and really changed my view on a lot of art and culture. And I think, I think really that's what I was lacking a little bit here, which is kind of counterintuitive conclusions that you w- could not have come to yourself you know, that kind of thing, which Shaviro offers all the time through quite simple language and quite simple juxtapositions of kind of different examples of music and film and so on. I felt this article was lacking a little bit. And maybe that's unfair because Shaviro is, you know, one of the best writers out there. But but nevertheless, I think those are the kinds of people I kind of enjoy reading on this, this kind of area. And, and, and Wah himself, you know, I'm definitely going to search out some of his other work and keep an eye on him in the future. I, I, I saw from his one of his profiles that he has a, a book you out at some point or he's hoping to turn his phd into a book so i'll be very interested to follow that i think he was featured in jennifer walsh's thing at somerset house yeah i think he was speaking at that 
Yeah, as was Adam Harper, I think, as well. So. Yeah, I mean, this area isn't so much my, my area of speciality, but I wrote something recently about Kanye West and his video for Famous, which was out last year. I was got totally fascinated with it a few months ago. And after that, then, I, I was reading this essay by David Foster Wallace on television. It's called Unibus Plurum Television in U.S. Fiction. It's very old. I think it's from like 1990 or something like that. It's very long as well. And I was really interested by how many similarities there are between television in uh, Foster Wallace's presentation and the Internet. Now, like a lot of the themes he's talking about are really applicable to Internet related art as it's appearing you know as, as it has appeared in the past couple of decades a lot of this stuff isn't new it's appeared in different media not just on in television but also in fiction so Wallace talks quite a lot in that essay about what he calls image fiction which is fiction about real people and celebrities and so on people who are real but fictionalizing them and doing things with them that haven't happened to them and sort of deviating from the framework that they preside they present in terms of their identity it's not an academic essay, so it doesn't have any particular point. It just sort of wanders from, from theme to theme. Uh, but that was one I found quite suggestive. And now we'll move on to Research in the Round, which is our regular roundup of recently published research in musicology and other fields. Uh, I'll start off this episode. So I just wanted to draw some attention to recent work in audiovisual studies. And I just mentioned Stephen Shaviro. So I'm very excited to get his new book, Digital Music Videos, which came out a couple of months ago on Rutgers University Press. It's a, a, a very short book. So it's collecting some of his blog posts from the last few years on his blog, The Pinocchio Theory, and um, adding some new writings and basically surveying the field of digital music videos, looking at videos from people like, yeah, from FKA Twigs and Rihanna and Lana Del Rey and Animal Collective and Kylie Minogue and all sorts of other people. So I'm really excited. I've got that in order. Um, so that should be interesting. Uh, a, a kind of a follow up in a way to post cinematic affect book I was talking about. So he does a lot of work. He does um, kind of more straightforwardly theoretical philosophical work on things like speculative realism. But I really enjoy his, his stuff on uh, culture and I especially enjoy actually his recommendations of uh, authors so I've got most of my favorite author recommendations from him in the last couple of years from his blog I don't know him personally that's one thing I wanted to mention and then the other thing was another piece of work which has been published which belongs to kind of audiovisual studies I suppose and this is uh, Matthias Korsgaard's music video after MTV which has been published on Rootledge and that's obviously surveying the field of music video after MTV so chiming again with some of the stuff we've been talking about. My contribution to research of the round a little bit uh, more August. Uh, <laughs> well, probably everybody's already heard this, but um, one of the recipients of the 2017 Kyoto Prize is Richard Truskin. Uh, on the website, the blurb says, a musicologist and critic of prodigious erudition who has transformed contemporary perspectives on music through historical research and essays that defy conventional critical paradigms. That last part is a bit debatable, but uh, um, it, it's hard to argue with um, you know, the, the impact he's had. Dr. Truskin has pioneered a new dimension in Western music culture through musicology research that transcends conventional historiographical methodologies, issuing sharp critical analysis backed by exhaustive knowledge of many diverse fields. His unrivaled perspective has significantly influenced both performance and study, elevating the importance and creative value of critical discourse to the music world. So uh, we spoke about Richard Truskin in a, a previous episode, and as I think I said then, I uh, was not agreeing with uh, you know, a lot of his views. I really do think he's got a, a very good prose style and he, he writes very effectively in different registers, including journalistically for, for a broad audience. So I think this prize is half a million euro or something like that. So it's a pretty 
Pretty big too. The other thing I wanted to mention is uh, to do with the American Council of Learned Societies. The American Council of Learned Societies pleased to announce the establishment of the Susan McClary and Robert Walser Fellowship in Music Studies. The couple has endowed the fellowship with $1.6 million gift as partly a bequest and partly an outright contribution. So the ACLS will begin naming McClary Walser ACLS Fellows from 2018 onwards. Um, so everybody's going to be able to apply for that. That's a very generous contribution, and it's uh, quite uh, munificent as well. So uh, that's it for another episode of Talking Musicology. Many thanks again for lending your ears to our babble, and we will catch you again. Bye.